Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and know that you are welcome to the Nook. Yes, yes, down there in the street, you chose the correct bell. Santoro, Lawrence P., and this is Tales to Terrify, and welcome to it, to episode 62. Yes, yes, winter is dwindling, draining off in chill rain and fog. Uh, Well, oh, before we go any further tonight... Okay, yes. Doff your jackets, park your rain gear, grab a snack, pour a drink, find a chum. But then, then I would like to direct your attention to that bright and toothy creature emerging from a blood-red tide seascape. The creature is the work of our old chum from the island state of Hawaii, Brad Tiki Shark Parker. And of course, I am talking about our artwork for March. Mr. Parker heard last week's lamentation about Tales to Terrify's lack of cover art and generously offered us, well, he calls it simply Sea Creature. The critter was inspired by a short film called The Disappearance, made for a surf film contest held by Transworld Surf Magazine, and it won first place. 
The disappearance tells the tale of a surf team going to an extremely remote island in Indonesia, looking for the perfect wave. But instead, they find... Well, I leave it to your imagination. It's worth a look. We have a link to the film on the show website at http colon tales to... You know where it is. But once more, I have digressed because this, this is about Brad. And he wanted me to tell you that Prince of Sea Creature will be on sale. There will even be a Sea Creature tiki mug of his own design available later this year. Brad says he hopes the painting will go on to be used in the marketing for Body Glove. That's a special line of quick-dye surfwear called Amphibious. Plus, hopefully there will be posters, art prints, skate decks, etc. And I have no idea what I'm talking about. Oh, yes, Um, there is one more thing. Brad says that my reading of his artist statement the last time we posted one of his paintings was, well, let me quote him here. He says, one of my favorite things I may have ever heard. And then he adds that here is an interesting review of him and his work from a very interesting fellow. And then he says that it would sound great if spoken by you, me, so Here, from Gnostic racketeer and crew noir Jimmy Vargas, is a comment on Brad Tiki Shark Parker. Mr. Vargas says, Your work is entering a new realm now, Brad. It's noir cocktail, the haunting tiki subconscious. You are defining a whole new oeuvre. It's fascinating to witness, definitely expanding my inner ocular imagination. You are catching the dreamed undreamed. Well, thanks again for coming to our aid, Brad. It's really good work. So, now, after you consider stopping by the Tales webpage to buy the book... And perhaps fund us generously by tapping the contribute button to make, oh, say, a one-time gift or become a monthly subscriber. And after you've had your look at the wall, dipped into the goodies and gone to the well of beverages, after all that, here it is. Fiction. And we have... Another two-tale night tonight. In fact, we have two graveyard tales tonight. Our first for the evening is Cemetery Water. It's by Frances Snowder. Ms. Snowder has an MFA in creative writing from the University of Maryland, College Park. Her stories have appeared in the Columbia University Quarto and in Common Lives, Lesbian Lives. She is a 2012 graduate of the Odyssey Writing Program and a current member of the online writing workshop for fantasy, science fiction, and horror, where Cemetery Water was reviewed as an editor's choice. She currently lives in Oklahoma. And here is Frances Snowder's Cemetery Water.
The sun burns the part in my butch haircut, and I tell myself that it isn't scary to be lost in a cemetery at noon in August. Besides, I have a map. I am sitting in the shade of a catalpa tree and trying to make sense of the tiny words and lines. I am sun-dazed. Yes, I am always a bit spacey. There's nothing wrong with my brain, but it easily becomes unmoored in the free float from my internal world to the external one. At least that's what my ex, Colleen, said. She's a clinical psychologist. She should know. It still bothers me that I had the hottest sex of my life with somebody who taught hostage negotiation to the FBI. Even after all this time, I'm burned about it. How could I have let anyone lead me anywhere after that? But it's my habit to take hold of someone else's skirts and ride in her wake like a water skier. Today, however, I'm alone. Belinda! I call to the ghost who summoned me here. Where are you hiding? You know I hate waiting. Come on, I'm sweating buckets. I'm dizzy and sick at my stomach. She materializes before me, a transparent vision wearing the same clothes she wore when we explored Woodlawn two years ago. White shorts, a sleeveless blouse that reveals her flat, braless chest through the armholes, and a broad-brimmed straw hat tilted over one eye. She carries a leather wineskin slung over her knobby shoulder. She says, The American Sappho Perry Winslow lives in San Francisco. Look, I came back here to apologize. There it is. I'm sorry. You said you would stop picking on me if I came. Now I'm lost in this place again. It's friggin' hot out here and I'm thirsty. Please just show me the way out of here before I get sunstroke. She says, I stepped to you from the black car of Lethe, pure as a baby. God, that's inspired. I start digging in my fanny pack for a pen, but all I have is a can of orange day-glow spray paint, which I toss into some weeds. Don't bother remembering, she says. It's plath. You get nothing more from me. She lifts the wineskin bag off her shoulders and offers it. Cemetery water. I could use some real water right now. My hands shake. I drop the map. Okay, I screwed up. I'm sorry I took the credit for writing your poems. I didn't even know you used me at first. Her expression is wry. I used you? You used me. Don't hold it against me that I never worshipped you. You divas want everything but sex from female friends. I liked you well enough. We were pals, but that's beside the point, isn't it? I was an open channel. Now you want to quit. Fine. Just show me the gate. The adulation was my due. Stop it. Those poems would never have been published under anybody's name because your hand no longer writes. So I got the fame and a little money. You couldn't use it now. Look, what's in a name after you're dead? Just some print in a newspaper. Only eternal life, Rosebud. She turns from me. Hey, human beings are shallow. We're 90% water. I grumble to the wineskin on her back. Oh yeah, water and the death thing. 
Given your ghostly presence, I'm thinking that stuff about the transcendence of the soul is overrated. My stomach heaves, but nothing comes up. Come, she says, and drifts to such a distance down the main road that she is no more than a shimmering reflection from a hidden mirror. I lay my hand over the top of my head to shade it and follow the apparition. I stumble a little and pant as I follow her. It reminds me of the first time we walked here together. Tall, bone-thin and angular, Belinda made me look like a troll beside her, although I didn't think I looked short and squat in other company. As I ambled up Marshalloo Parkway toward Woodlawn behind her, she composed a poem to mourn my leaving New York. Adventurer from the West, wayfarer, how can you abandon dark women with flaming... Make that smoldering breasts even as they cry weep don't go oh perry don't go her self-illusory poem made me feel rotten i had not made the hour-long subway trip to the last uptown stop on the number one line to see belinda i don't even know why she liked me she was just as manipulative and crazy as my ex It was just my last opportunity to make the pilgrimage to Herman Melville's grave, which Belinda had promised to lead. She visited Woodlong frequently because it was near her apartment. Sometimes she went there to pace out her lousy poetry between the tombstones. She had said Poe's crummy old house was somewhere near. I wanted to see that, too, before I left town. I belched garlic behind my hand. The aftermath of our Chinese dinner, paid for with the $25 from a Bronx Poetry Award. I had been ravenously hungry. I'd eaten the broccoli chicken too fast. My sweaty jeans felt heavy, and I wanted to sleep, even though I hadn't drunk a beer, only because the restaurant didn't sell it on Sunday. I had gained some weight, was out of shape. I kept falling behind her and jogging a bit to keep up, and was constantly panting and out of breath. She didn't seem to notice. Now she was quoting something from Herrick's Hesperides in anticipation of our quest. And when all bodies meet, in Lethe to be drowned, then only numbers sweet with endless life are crowned. What's Lethe? I asked her. You always forget that, don't you? She said. We had met in a poetry workshop at Columbia University the preceding spring. No romantic chemistry bonded us, only shared feminist politics and mutual support for our writing. We considered ourselves artists, strugglers, the proud bohemian poor who worked dreary nine-to-five secretarial jobs as we aspired to greatness. She often quoted famous lines of poetry, and I took up the habit from her. About us, she said, "'Many a flower is born to blush unseen,' and waste its sweetness on the desert air. I forgot who wrote it. After our class finished, I met Belinda occasionally for dinner, nodding to her over Indian or Chinese or Italian food as she told me about her intentionally bizarre life. After three months of living with Colleen, who got excited at crime scenes and spent her evenings profiling serial murderers, I bailed on her. I didn't dare date again so I had no personal life to share with Belinda. I was just trying to stay emotionally safe. Belinda was an acquaintance who stimulated my curiosity, but didn't threaten me with any real 
closeness. I could sit and hear her confidences without judgment like a therapist, mainly because I wasn't invested. Teasing and the flattery was just my way of hiding the fact that I had been daydreaming. When she won a regional award, I said, I dub you the Poet Laureate of the Bronx. On the fateful day of our tour, I called Belinda from a payphone a block away because her apartment buzzer and intercom system were broken. I paced around the subway entrance with my hands stuck in my jeans pockets and pretended to wait for a bus so as not to appear to be loitering like a hooker. Not that anyone would mistake a butch dyke for a hooker. Colleen told me the criminal justice system lets ex-convicts, who slept on boats in the East River, wander all over the city looking for work between 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. After she told me that, I knew no place in New York City was ever safe. Waiting again. Always waiting in the grocery store line for a cab or waiting for somebody to show up. It is so rude, I thought, to keep someone waiting. Little waves of heat shimmered up from the broken black asphalt, making the street look all hellish and distorted. Twenty minutes after one, Belinda stalked around the corner and said, Oh, I'm so sorry I'm late. I got a call from an editor just as I was leaving the apartment. Sow's ear wants to publish one of my poems. I said, You're a genius. That's friggin' wonderful. She could show off and brag to me, but I wasn't giving her anything real. Divas will suck all your emotions dry if you let them. After we ate, she showed me up to her apartment where I met Paul, the boyfriend whose premature ejaculations had been the subject of many confidences. He surprised me. I had expected from her poetic references to his tenor voice and moderately sized penis to encounter a wiry little Irishman. Paul, really Saul, turned out to be Jewish, almost a twin to Belinda, rail-thin, pale-skinned, and brillo-haired. That's narcissism for you, to pick somebody that is a gender-opposite reflection. Their spacious apartment was located on a seedy block. I almost asked the rent out of a habit of comparing spaces and prices, but that sort of information would no longer be relevant to my future life in San Francisco. It occurs to me now that the conditions of Belinda's life, Paul, the location of her apartment, its spaciousness and light, were lost to her that day. She lingered over the bookshelf and caressed the ancient cat lying on top of it. When we left, Paul waved from the bedroom without interrupting his telephone conversation with his mother. He had no clue it was the last time. Two hours before Belinda died, she stood with me outside the gates of the cemetery on the very spot where her bleeding corpse would lie. We each took a sip of water from her wineskin bag and walked to the guard station, talking. I said, My parents want to be cremated. They read Jessica Mitford's The American Way of Death and decided not to let the undertakers fleece them and not to hog up the land. I like their reasons, she said. But Jews don't believe in cremation. My grandmother has bought us all plots in Greenwood, in Brooklyn. If I never marry... I used to work at Greenwood! The god butted in. He was a freckled man with a scrofulous complexion, the sunburned skin of his face tight as a balloon. He gave us maps, leering at Belinda's nipples. 
Tourists always go to the Steinway Mound out there. Got room for a hundred in that hill and not full up yet. Got some pianos in there with them, too. They also have Boss Tweed and Eberhard Faber. The Pencil Man and the English guy who invented soda. We got the Woolworths, but I bet you there is no five and dime in the mound. <laughs> His pale blue eyes were vacant, glazed over. I suspected he had been shooting up heroin or snorting cocaine. He rambled on in his Jersey brogue. I'm new to this job here, but I know the ropes. You might think one cemetery's the same as another, but they aren't. Greenwood is mainly Dutch, got Bergens all over. He fascinated me like a poisonous snake in the zoo, but Belinda was antsy to go. She turned to me and poked at a place in the east-central part of the map. Your Melville is here, and my Elizabeth Cady Stanton is due west of him there. The guard stared away into the distance, as though he were envisioning those two plots, but I misread him. When his mind and gaze returned, they refocused on the tiny peaks of Belinda's chest. Visiting relatives, huh? he said. Belinda and I exchanged a covert glance and said, Yes, in unison. Don't get lost, he warned. Because if you get lost, there's nobody to come in after you. We'll manage, Belinda said. Don't worry about us, pig, she added when we were out of hearing range. Belinda's ghost has vanished again, and I realize with panic that I left the map under the Catalpa. The only traffic on the main cemetery road today is me. A white line runs down the middle. Placing one penny loafer ahead of the other on that line, I walk. I am near the mausoleum I had leaned against on that other August day. But the recognition of this entity isn't comforting as it is the third time I've seen it from different directions today. To comfort myself, I recite the twenty-third psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff... Nah, sounds too phallic. I translate into lesbianese. The shepherdess with her crook leadeth me beside the still waters. She restoreth my soul. Hum, hum. My head is too hot to pray it in the right order. The cool part of my brain is a guide speaking with Belinda's voice. Unlike the cemeteries of the West, with their monotonous rows of modest stones and simple crosses, this one holds a Disneyland of architectural wonders and statuary. To my left is an elevated bier. Two smooth marble stairways, like frozen ocean waves, invite the living to climb upward. Open to the sky, the stone coffin makes a bench or bed under a matching white canopy poised between four ionic columns. It would be the perfect place for children to play Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella. Go ahead, ascend the marble staircase and sit on the bier. I drag myself up the stairs and sit, as advised, scanning in all direction for the gates. My t-shirt is wet down the back. My underarms are smelly, and I'm getting a tight feeling in my chest that makes it difficult to breathe. Where are you? Don't make me wait again. Her voice says, Wouldn't you rather stay here with me? 
Wouldn't it be nice to lie beneath clear blue skies until the resurrection when the heavens will open and souls will pop out of the ground and shoot into it like bottle rockets? Heterosexual imagery, I whisper. Belinda, stop it. I want to go home. I can't see any exits, any living beings, or any horizon for that matter. The necropolis, shrouded in evergreens and cypresses, lies heaped up on small knolls all around. Heat waves shimmer off the stones and catch in the periphery of my eyes, making me start with their false movement. I vomit a little clear puddle on the concrete and shamble back down the steps. Water! Water everywhere and not a drop to drink! Belinda chants from the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Water! Water everywhere! And all the boards did shrink. I add, Water! Water everywhere! And into it you sink and stink. Belinda, stop tormenting me. I'm lost and my mouth is like cotton. My head is so hot. She drones on as a guide. Observe yet another marvel of human ingenuity on our right. This builder of an everlasting memorial to himself preferred an oriental pagoda-style crypt, a sculptured house with fake windows and doors. The architecture is American hodgepodge, not really oriental, not really any style at all, a fantasy in stone. Aha! Two people are trudging along the road I have just left. I am rescued, I think, and leap up, waving both hands. The pair... Looks like Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. The short, fat one returns the hand signal, but when they draw nearer, I realize who they are, or were. The tall one wears all white and a hat. The short one used to be me. Hallucination, I tell myself. Maybe not my fate. We're going to see Herman Melville, I shouted, jumping up and down, waving my arms crosswise like one of those guys on the airport runway. Then I felt a little dizzy. Can I have a drink of your water? You were really smart to bring that. Where are we now? Belinda, always on top of things, pointed to the exact spot on the map. See, here is where Maine, which is the street we're on, turns off onto Catalpa. I pretended to look. Then I took a long squirt of the tepid water from her wineskin, and we encountered the trees that gave Catalpa Street its name. I hated Catalpas. Two were planted in the yard of a rental house my family had lived in once. They had strange, draggly, flappy-eared leaves and long brown seed pods that came out of stinking wilted white flowers. In the fall, hordes of striped caterpillars, which had spawned in the flowers, undulated toward the rental house. Coming to get me, I thought. Worm trees, I said to Belinda in the telegraphic manner I had when I was tired. She nodded politely, as though she understood fully what I meant, and that false sense of our closeness galled me. I got the idea then of what my significance was to her. I was a substitute mother, not that I had any maternal characteristics whatsoever besides big breasts. I just happened to be female and steady, unlike her fickle mother. 
She won the Bronx Poetry Award with an autobiographical poem about that loved-slash-hated woman who embarrassed her when she was a child by lying on park benches with her skirt over her head, auburn pubic hair flaming in the sunlight. Her mother, a drug addict, would disappear for long periods of time. Belinda would call the morgue every day. She had been calling sporadically for fifteen years when, finally, the men at the morgue called Belinda. We turned off the main road onto a circular path surrounding a dry fountain, and she said we had gone wrong. So we backtracked up the road a bit further, and then turned off at another place, and trudged up a knoll. Oh, he was such a great man, Belinda said, creeping up on the Melville grave with reverence. Looks like nobody too much cares, I said, striding right over to the weed-choked grave and up to the open blank book which formed the top of the tombstone. I rested my elbows on it. No fence, no flowers. Have you got a pen? She pulled the stub of a pencil and a notepad out of her short's pocket. I never go anywhere without writing implements, she said. Poetry must be captured whenever it comes. Yeah, I said, taking the pencil and declining the pad. I wrote in big block letters on the stone page of the book, Call me Ishmael, damn it. You're right, she said. Sometimes graffiti is the only way a person can send a message. By the time the Cultural Society gets back here, this will have washed off, I said. Then we'll have to come back with orange Dayglow spray paint, she said. I nodded hesitantly. I wasn't keen on grave defilement. She squinted her eyes at me knowingly. We drank more water and Belinda led us in the direction of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's grave. We crossed a bridge over a dried-up mud puddle that was once a pond. A few feet away, a goose squatted in the shade of a cracked, illegible tombstone, nibbling grass. It's thirsty, Belinda said. Poor duck. It's a gander, a male goose, crazed by the heat, I said. She squirted water from the wineskin into her hand and offered it to the goose. He wouldn't drink from her hand, so she sprinkled water into the grass. Then she dug a little hole in front of the goose and filled it from the wineskin. We walked away. The goose shook his head violently, too blind to see the water. That goose is on the way out, I thought. That goose is cooked. Now I'm thirsty again, I said. She handed me the wineskin and I realized it was almost empty. What's wrong with you? I said. Why'd you give all the water to the goose? I felt a wave of nausea. She said, It's only a little further to Stanton's grave. We could rest there, and then we can leave. Ignoring her, I let myself down gingerly on the clammy dark side of a mausoleum. This mausoleum was on a street of them, like tiny cubicle houses, with stained glass windows and grillwork doors. Belinda ran around to the front and exclaimed, The door is open! Someone left yellow chrysanthemums and a little broom. Someone sweeps this place. How sweet! Come look! I'll pass, I said. We shouldn't be out in the heat much longer. We should be getting back to the gate. Okay, you look pale, she said. But we have to visit Stanton first. A few paces down the road, 
A strange bent pipe with a little hardware harness around it stuck up about a foot from the ground. Water trickled from the end of the pipe. Hey, do you know what that is? I asked her, pointing at it. Cable on the cornice, she joked, a Dickinson reference. Cute, but no. A source of water, I said. Give me a wineskin. You see this thing? I said, jiggling the hardware. It's a handle. This is a pump. I pushed the lever down a couple of times. It doesn't work, she said. You have to prime it. I'm a country girl. I know these things. I kept depressing the lever. She rolled her eyes in disbelief. Suddenly, with a croak, the water spewed out. I drank some and stuck my head under the spigot. She took off her sandals and dabbled her feet in the puddle. Then I pumped some into her hands and she splashed her face. I filled the wineskin and we both took a long drink. The water tasted a little rusty. We went on, refreshed, and I felt proud of myself for taking the lead, for once. In a short while, she located Elizabeth Cady Stanton's grave, which was surmounted by an obelisk-shaped stone. Belinda took offense, because Stanton's husband's identical stone had statesman and all his deeds engraved on it, but hers just said wife and mother. As she was ranting and threatening orange day-glow desecration, I walked around the stone and found the list of Stanton's feminist contributions chiseled on the backside. When I showed her, she shrugged her shoulders and sighed, calming down. We had completed our pilgrimage. I followed her without paying attention because I was distracted by a row of smooth angels holding lilies in front of rough-hewn crosses. The statues were not all the same. There were variations on a theme. That design was popular, I said. What do you suppose an angel with a cross means? Christian symbolism, not for Jews, Belinda said. I speculated. The rough cross is this earthly material life, and the angel represents the spiritual and eternal life. Comforting, no? She nodded to humor me. The face of the next lily angel was covered by the leaves of a tenacious vine that strangled her neck. The angel's white breast seemed to quiver, but then I realized it wasn't her. It was me. I was trembling and felt lightheaded. I gasped and hurried to catch up with Belinda. You're walking too fast. I need to rest again, I said, panting and fanning my face with my hands. We sat down on the steps in the shade of that marvelous ocean wave beer. She drank a few gulps of water and handed the wineskin to me. I took a sip and handed it back. As she slung it over her shoulder, I said, Yuck, it occurs to me that this water may not have come from a city pipe. I was still mad at her. What are you saying? Belinda said. Nothing, no problem. The water is earthy-tasting. I wish we had some wine or some cold beer. Earthy? She stood up, glaring. I said, I don't know. It's just that pumps work from water tables, groundwater. If it's not a city line, the water won't be treated. They probably just use it to water the grass or something. Her expression goaded me. Yeah, water in a place like this. Well, you know, it could have seepage. Her hands started clutching air. 
seepage. Are you saying the water we drank could give us cholera? Her eyes were bugging out, and she started raking her fingers down her throat. You are such a damn drama queen, I said, the sneer in my voice audible to me. The water's probably okay. Oh, now I see. The veil has dropped. She balled her fists, and tears ran down her cheeks. I thought you loved me, but you were just cultivating an association. You really hate me and envy my success. Find your own way out, jerk! Belinda jumped up and bolted, the wineskin thumping on her back as she ran. Hey, I was just kidding. Bad joke, hey, I'm sorry! I shouted, chasing her. She kept running, and I kept her in my sights. I almost caught up at the guard station, but I was too winded to yell anymore. I stood in the middle of Main Street, panting and wiping the sweat from my face with the neck of my T-shirt, relieved to be back at the entrance. What did you do to her? the guard said. I was about to answer his insinuation with something smart, Alec, when car wheels screeched, followed by a soft thud and the crash and tinkle of breaking glass. I ran out past the wrought iron spears at the gate. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. She lay on her back, conscious and staring up incredulously into the trees, blood pooling behind her head. The blood mixed with the water from the burst wineskin and flowed in a stream toward the gutter. Her black eyes focused on mine briefly before they closed. The intimacy of that moment made my skin crawl. And then a horrible guilt crushed into my chest like an anvil. I didn't want to go to her funeral, but I did because Paul called me up expecting me to. When I got there, a little late, he was in such bad shape, crying with his mother, that I realized he wouldn't have missed me. People who must have been Belinda's relatives were pinning little scraps of black cloth to their clothes. I asked what that meant, and a man with a beard and sideburn curls told me that if I felt like rending my garments, I should wear one. I didn't take one, and I was glad the service was closed coffin, too. A few weeks later, I moved to San Francisco, where I had some friends, and got a job in a bookstore. In the evenings, I tried to write a novel, but it kept coming out poetry. I suppose the guilt made me obsess about Belinda and her own medium. I versified things she had confided about her mother and Paul. I wrote what I had seen, 
Paul ripping the breast pockets off his black shirt at the funeral. The guilt poetry was successful. I submitted it to journals and got published for the first time. The heaviness made me weary and unable to enjoy my success. After that, I won a few contests. My name got around, and before long I was speaking at universities about what I called the Belinda Poems. I had always been shy of public speaking, so my new relish for this activity surprised me. The heaviness left. I became a different person when I got up to speak, taller and thinner and more eloquent. I quoted other women's poetry besides my own, as Belinda would have done. It was weird good, but I didn't know what was really going on. The night I won an award of $1,500, I had a dream about Belinda. I was back in the cemetery, sitting on the steps of that elevated bier. She stood before me, dressed in the white shorts, the sleeveless blouse, and the straw hat. In a solemn voice, she said, You are not writing that poetry. I am. You owe me. What do I owe you? What do you want? You may not love me, but I still love you. Come back, Perry, she said sadly. If you come back, we will be friends again, and I will set you free. I was happy in San Francisco. Going back to New York was the last thing I wanted to do, but Belinda would not leave me alone. She didn't just appear in dreams anymore. Belinda's ghost came and stood in front of me until the terror wore off, and all that remained was the guilt for that one moment of moral failure. Finally, it was August, and approaching the third anniversary of her death. I could take the haunting no more. I thought that if I went back on the same day in August and apologized, Belinda would exercise herself. From LaGuardia Airport, I took a taxi to Woodlawn and retraced my steps on that fatal day. A small can of orange day-glow spray paint stuffed in my fanny pack. First, I would go to Melville's grave and paint it. Then I would spray the front of Stanton's obelisk. Finally, I would visit Belinda's grave in Greenwood and tell her I had done it. I thought these acts would appease her. The plan was doing pretty well at first. A different guard was on duty. I got the map and followed it with no trouble. I got to Melville's grave. I painted Call Me Ishmael on his tombstone book. But then I got lost, looking for the goose bridge and the pump. I finally found the beer where I had spooked Belinda and climbed to the top of it. By then the sun was high and it was hot, just like on that other August day. Maybe hotter. And stupid me... I had forgotten to bring water. I knew the gates were within running distance from the beer, so I chickened on trying to find Stanton's obelisk just to finish the silly job. As I looked out over the lumpy grounds, I began to feel nausea. It was a mistake for a 41-year-old woman to be acting like a child, running around in over a hundred degree heat, desecrating tombs. Belinda's ghost probably wouldn't care anyway. What was I thinking? This was feeling like a trap. You envied me, Belinda said in my brain, but you didn't love me.
Then I saw them, I mean us, on the road. For a moment, I fell back into the loop of the past and awoke, as if from a reverie, staring at my new penny loafers walking the white line. This is not the way we went, I complained. I could be going deeper into the cemetery instead of out. This is the way you're going, Belinda said. Want some cemetery water? She offered me the wineskin. It was covered in green slime. She laughed. I staggered into some shade and fell on the dry grass. When I opened my eyes, a cherub face leered at me from a shock of long grass. I gasped and sat up. What the hell? It was the head of a decapitated baby doll. The nude plastic body stood up against the tree trunk, filled to the neck with mud. A yellow and black striped caterpillar crawled obscenely across its abdomen. Ugh, I had been lying under a catalpa. I sat up and studied my map and drew a line with my finger on the road that would lead me to the gates quickly. I scolded myself as I walked. Why didn't you bring a hat? Why don't you carry a water bottle? Why can't you rely on yourself instead of following others? When I looked up, I wasn't approaching the gates at all. I had gone down a dirt path. I felt dizzy. I needed some water. Where was that damn pump? How many times had I passed by this same row of angels? One of the angels stared down at me through the dead brown leaves of a tenacious vine encircling her neck. Her breast quivered. I looked at the ground to steady myself, thinking the gate was close. A crusty brown leather object had wrapped itself around one corner of the angel's pedestal, probably blown by the wind. Upon closer inspection, I saw it had a braided strap and a plastic spout with the cap broken off. I didn't dare touch the cursed object, but fell beside it, my arms and legs contracting in spasms. Thank you for that, Francis. And when you get settled in your new digs on the left coast, I hope we'll hear from you again. If you're wondering, and of course you are, Cemetery Water was read to us tonight by Ms. Goldeen Ogawa. Goldeen is a writer of fantasy and science fiction, an illustrator, a painter, and a cartoonist. She says much of her childhood was taken up with outdoor activities such as horseback riding, mountain biking, and whitewater rafting. She completed her first novel at age 13, threw it away, and began a second. That finished, she threw it away and started a third. Finally, her mother told her to send her stories to editors instead. And during what she calls the wash of rejections that followed, Goldine began creating comics featuring many of the characters from her stories. These included the webcomics The Iron Wizard, which she produced with her brother Evan Ogawa from 2005 to 2010, and Angel Devil from 
2004 to the present. As a voice actor, she also produces a podcast of her own, Radio Grimbald, and has served as a narrator on the Starship Sofa, and we welcome her now to Tales to Terrify. So thank you for your work on Cemetery Water, Goldine. Come back soon. Our second graveyard tale tonight is a disturbing little piece by an old friend of the Nook, Tim Wagoner. You'll remember Tim's very short piece, Unwoven, that was part of one of your very early visits to the Nook. I'm sure you remember his longer piece, Long Way Home, and in show 39, his Do No Harm gave us all a fresh look at the shuffling reanimated among us and made us rethink all we thought we could know about zombies. At age five, Tim made his own comic book version of King Kong versus Godzilla, and a few years later he began selling professionally. Since then, he's published more than 20 novels and two collections from his more than 100 published tales. Here is Tim Wagner's Ghost in the Graveyard. You approach the black wrought iron gate which stretches between two squat red brick structures that remind you of stunted turrets. The metal sign bolted to the brick of the turret on your left reads, West Branch Burial Ground. You've been coming to this place now and again since you were a child, over fifty years, and you wonder why you've never noticed this sign before. You've only been outside the air-conditioned comfort of your Camry for a few seconds, and even though internally your body is still cool, your skin is beginning to react to the heavy, moist August heat. You feel a strange, almost numbing sensation as sweat begins to build, as if your nerve endings are in shock from the sudden transition from cool to hot as hell. You don't plan to be here long, you tell yourself. It shouldn't be so bad. You reach out and grip one of the gate's bars. It's hot and slick in your hand, and you realize that it's not metal you're touching, but rather black paint covering the metal, something else you never noticed before. You peer through the gate and see that the grounds are as well kept as ever, the grass neatly trimmed, no broken tree limbs or leaves in sight. You have no idea who takes such good care of the place. You've never seen anyone working here, perhaps your imagination offers, the place looks after itself. The gate isn't locked, as far as you know it never has been. You push your way inside easily, the gate moving smooth and silent, well-made, well-maintained, perhaps both. You step into the graveyard, or is it cemetery? You always get the two confused. Burial ground, then. After all, that's what it said on the sign, right? You step into the burial ground and regard the rows of headstones. The markers are smaller than in more modern cemeteries, certainly smaller than in the one you just left. And while there may be less space between each stone, there's more between each row. You don't want to look at the headstones, not yet. So you turn and look at the historical marker set on a pole on either side of the wall. 
You've never really read it before, only ever gave it a passing glance. You wonder why the marker faces inward instead of outward, so folks driving by might see it and be tempted to stop and take a look, perhaps so they won't be tempted. Then why have a marker at all? You read for the first time the marker in its entirety. West Branch Quaker Burial Ground, erected 1948 in memory of Samuel and Anna J. Jones. The wall contains brick from the Friends Meeting House, which stood across the road in active service from 1804 to 1906. You're surprised. A Quaker Meeting House stood across the street for 102 years. You crane your neck so you can look around the sign. All that rests across the country road now are small, nondescript houses that wouldn't be out of place in any suburb. You wonder how you could live your entire childhood here, just down the road, and never know about the old meeting house. You wonder what happened in 1906 that spelled the church's end. Fire? Age? Or perhaps its members simply grew old and passed away, and their progeny moved elsewhere. You know of no other Quaker churches in the area. You turn away from the sign and look at the simple gray wooden building in the far left corner of the burial ground. You stride toward it, the summer heat finally starting to get to you. This isn't the proper atmosphere for a graveyard, you think. It should be overcast, gloomy, with a hint of chill in the air. You wipe sweat from your forehead with the back of your hand, but there's too much, and some drips on the lenses of your sunglasses. You consider wiping the glasses off, but decide instead to remove them. You carry them in your right hand as you near the building, as if to underscore to yourself the fact that you don't intend to stay here long. Otherwise, you'd put them in your shirt pocket, right? The trees, you're not sure what they are, oak, elm, seem to droop in the heat, their leaves limp and dry. The treetops sway in a breeze, which doesn't reach down this far. Or maybe... There isn't a breeze, and the trees are swaying all by themselves, your imagination whispers. You half expect to feel a tingle along your spine at the idea, as you would have when you were a child. But you feel nothing. From somewhere off in the distance comes the lazy thrum of cicadas. You continue walking toward the building, careful to avoid stepping on any graves, not wishing to give someone in the past a shiver, you tell yourself jokingly. The building is a simple structure, four walls and a sloping roof, constructed from rough, weather-beaten logs. There are two windows, unadorned, no curtains, plain white painted wood for frames. The left has a crack in one of its panes. All you can see through the glass is blackness, as if the building were filled with solid shadow but you know it's just a trick of the light. The wood of the featureless gray door is beginning to come apart in tiny threads, as if it were woven of some sort of strange cloth. Another historical marker here, this one affixed to the side of the building. 1804 Quaker Meeting House To commemorate the first church erected in Baker Township, Poss County, Ohio, this log replica was constructed in 1972 by the Baker Township 4-H Club and the Greenfield Area Campfire Girls. This sign you have read before. You read it aloud to your twin nephews the first time you brought them here over twenty years ago. 
They couldn't have been more than four, and both were scared of going into the meeting house, so you went in first, to check for ghosts, you said. The boys looked at you, eyes wide, with equal measures of fear and delight. And after you came out and pronounced, No ghosts, in a solemn voice, they repeated the phrase in awe and wonder. They walked around the rest of the day, saying, No ghosts, to everyone they saw. The boys graduated college a while back, and you don't get to see them that much, mostly just during special occasions, like today. They looked so grown up this morning, you barely recognized them. You know it's a cliché, but you still can't help wondering where the time got to. Maybe it came here, you think. After all, time has to go somewhere when it dies. Why not here? You grip the rusty metal handle and shove open the door. It doesn't give easily, and you know it's been a long time since anyone's been in here. You step inside the meeting house, no, the replica, and find that despite the heat outside, the stale air in here is almost cool. There's enough light filtering in from the windows to see by. Not that there's much to look at. A half dozen crude benches made of split logs for seats and lengths of two-by-fours for legs, a lectern up front. The floor is covered with a scattering of dust, dirt, and twigs. You look upward, half expecting to see a bat or two hanging from the crossbeams, but you don't. Just a small black paper wasp's nest, dry and fragile. You wonder if anyone has actually ever used this meeting hall to hold a service, or if it's nothing more than a kind of graveyard tourist attraction. Perhaps the spirits who used to attend church across the street now come here to worship, or whatever it is the dead do. Or perhaps this isn't really a replica at all. Perhaps this is the hall from across the street. Perhaps this is where it came after it was no longer needed. Your imagination again. This is just a project some 4-H kids thought up, or more likely some adult in charge of them. So what if the shadows huddled in the corners seem too thick, too dark? They're just shadows. You walk outside and pull the door closed behind you. You step around to the side of the building and there, next to the chain-link fence that serves as a rear wall for the burial ground, is an old tree. An oak? And resting at the base of the tree, propped against the trunk, are three small headstones, their surfaces smooth and blurred by time and the elements, whatever legends they once contained lost forever. The stone is a bright green, Moss, perhaps, or some sort of mildew. You wonder why the headstones are here. Were they placed out of the way by whoever, or whatever, your imagination whispers, takes care of the burial ground? Did they fall naturally, or were they knocked over by kids? You and your friends never pushed over any of the stones during the times you played here. You always thought it was because your parents taught you it was wrong to vandalize property. Now you wonder if it wasn't simply because you were afraid. Maybe, your imagination supplies, the bodies whose resting places the stones marked had gone to dust, and with no one to stand over, the stones fell, their purpose gone. Maybe the tree is some sort of marker itself, a monument to the headstone's decades, perhaps centuries, of watchful service. And maybe... It's just a tree. You move on, walking along the fence, not ready to look at the graves just yet. 
Less than two dozen feet from the meeting house, the grass gives way to a circle of bare earth. Another broken headstone lies face down in the circle, and you realize that it's been jammed into a hole, one big enough for a good-sized dog to go down. A groundhog hole, most likely. You've seen groundhogs in here before. One of your childhood friends, Eric Groves, used to say the groundhogs fed on the bodies buried here. You were always too smart to believe him, but every now and then you couldn't help wondering. You ask yourself why didn't whoever it is that keeps the grass trimmed so neatly fill in the hole with dirt rather than block it with a headstone. The latter action seems completely out of character for someone who otherwise takes such good care of the place. Probably some kid's idea of a joke. You consider removing the stone and placing it over against the tree with the others, but you decide against it, telling yourself it's too damn hot. You walk past the hole, thinking of the fun Eric Groves would have had making up stories about it to scare everyone. You wonder where Eric is now. Last you heard, he was a chemical engineer living in Texas. But that was years ago. You think of all the things you and your friends used to do here. You would race, weaving in and out among the gravestones, tell ghost stories to try to scare one another, and when it was dark, or rather dusk, for none of you would dare stay here once the sun was all the way down, you'd catch lightning bugs, or better yet, play ghost in the graveyard. You're not even sure you can remember the rules of the game. It was some version of tag, except the person who was it was the ghost, and whenever the ghost touched someone, that kid had to fall down and lie still, eyes closed. The last person to be touched was the new ghost, more something like that. It was really fun to play in full darkness, you recall, because it was harder to tag people, plus you ran the risk of tripping over the dead bodies. But playing in a real graveyard gave the game a special thrill that more than made up for playing at dusk. At the time, you used to wonder if the spirits in the graves you ran laughing and shouting over were angry at the disturbance. Now, you think they probably miss it. You know you sure do. Jesus, but you feel old. You stop beneath a tree, an elm, and wipe your forehead again. But all you do is smear sweat around. You gave up smoking when you were 21, but you wish you had a cigarette now even though smoking would probably just make you feel hotter. You wished you had a cigarette this morning, too, when you watched your father's coffin being lowered into a grave in a much larger and nicer cemetery on the other side of town. You tell yourself Dad's death was a blessing, that at least it freed him from the cancer. And even though you feel selfish for this, after all, it's your father you should be mourning, you can't help feeling that your childhood was buried along with him. Your mother died six years ago of congestive heart failure, and now your father's gone, too. You are officially, and irrevocably, an adult now. An aging adult with an ex-wife, no kids, and nothing really standing between you and the long descent into the same sort of hole that your father was planted in today. Is that why you came here after the reception at your sister's place? To say goodbye to your childhood? Maybe. You step out of the shade and walk toward the nearest row of gravestones. You begin reading names and dates. John Hoover, 1760-1813. Sarah Burkett, beloved wife and mother, 1767-1843. to 
Absalom Mast, 1869-1908. Well, at least you stand a good chance of living longer than these folk. That's something to feel good about, isn't it? You move on a few rows. The headstones here are smaller and made out of chalk-white stone. The legends are at once simpler and more ornate. William S. Pearson died 1871, fifth month, twelfth day, aged thirty-seven years. Another row over and the faces of the stones are soft and blank, scoured by year after year of wind, rain, and snow. You know just how they feel. Despite the fact that you're wearing dress slacks, you lower yourself to the neatly trimmed grass and sit cross-legged on the hot ground, facing the blank stones. You wonder if some years hence, not as many as you'd like, your nephews will come here after your funeral to say goodbye to a piece of their childhood. You wish you'd made more time for them when they were young, done more things with them, but it's too late now. As you sit and sweat, you fancy you see letters forming on the blank, gray-white face of the stone in front of you, as if rising upward through murky water, letters that form a familiar name. But it's just your imagination again. There are no letters, no name, just featureless stone. You stand, your knees protesting in a way they wouldn't have ten years ago. Time to leave. You've got a long drive back to the city, back to an empty condo and a boring job, back to what passes for your life. And as you start to go, you feel a cold breeze brush the back of your neck, its sigh a dry whisper in your ear which seems to say, Tag, you're it. And the hell of it is, you know you are. Thank you for that story, Tim. Uh, makes one think maybe too much. Hmm? In addition to his fiction, Tim has done articles on writing for Writer's Digest and Writer's Journal. He also teaches creative writing at Sinclair Community College in Dayton, Ohio, and in Pennsylvania at Seton Hill University's innovative, low-residency, Master of Fine Arts degree program in writing popular fiction. Ghost in the Graveyard was narrated for us tonight by Jonathan Dance. Jonathan's been here before, too. He narrated Bev Vincent's Silvery Moon about a year ago. In addition to reading other people's work, Jonathan has been a journalist, a Whitewater River guide, an archaeology field tech, and, of course, a writer. Jonathan says he writes speculative fiction that he would like to read, and that he wants to use the fantasy setting to tell stories about people. Swords, magic, and monsters are cool, he says, but people, ah, people are interesting. Jonathan lives in West Virginia with his wife, daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets. So, if you're moved, you might visit him at his blog, Words and Coffee. It's at www.jonathandance.com. That's D-A-N-Z. We'll put that at the bottom of the page. 
TalesToTerrify.com. Well, there. Two cemetery tales for tonight. Cher and I were back and forthing earlier this week. She made a comment that cemeteries are like the growth rings of a town. I had not thought of that, but yes, uh, when a town is new and building outward from whatever germ is the founding principle of the place, the the bodies are buried way out on the edge, away from life and the, the growth of the community. Time fills up the space between where the living are and where the dead await, and the town overtakes its own edge, and there we have it. A new graveyard must be built, out and beyond, and the old one secured, sealed, stopped, moved, perhaps. Well, I won't go on about it. But my own first town, Reading, Pennsylvania, was a small place compared with other places I've lived across my life. It was about 100,000 people at the time. I was 12 or so. It's smaller now. I lived near one edge of the city in a, in a very large, rambling cemetery. Charles Evans, by name, began just two blocks north of me. By kidhood scale, Evans was a whole country. It covered Redding's natural hills and was vastly old. Post-Revolutionary War, 1840s or so. At least it had been there in time for the die-off of the veterans of that historic conflict and the fourscore-plus years later dead of the Civil War. Our neighborhood, the whole town, was hills and dips that all led up to a ridge of mountains on one side and sloped down to the Schuylkill River on the other. Charles Evans was hilly and filled with century-old trees. The trees shaded the graves and grew even closer together on the northern fringe of the cemetery, the still sparsely settled part. And that was virtual forest. In winter, there was wonderful sledding on one of Evans' hills in particular, called the Nutcracker by the older boys. I never knew why until my first trip down the Nutcracker. See, you could build up a great head of speed, and then in the middle, suddenly there was a flat spot, a small ridge, and a sudden drop. Then the bottom came screaming towards you, and having survived the nutcracker part of the run, you quickly had to steer sharply or just bail out because the hill ended in a row of ancient and unforgiving oaks and lindens. I saw my first broken arm at the bottom of the nutcracker. It wasn't mine, but there it was. An important moment for a, for a guy. After sledding, I always came home iced solid on the outside and sweat-soaked inside my snowsuit. But, as in our two stories tonight, summer, summer, was the prime hanging-out time at Charles Evans Cemetery. My best friend Pete Reinhardt and I, sometimes Terry Hebart, some others, joined us while we excavated the mounds of yellow dirt that had been left by the diggers of graves. In that earth we found fossils, rock paintings, artifacts of cave people, bits of dinosaurs. Found it all. Or thought we had. We had not. We played war among the dead of all the country's wars, and we biked the curving trails and the hills of the place, but 
but for solitary summers, times when my friends were gone, and for just sitting in the shade and reading Jules Verne, Robert Louis Stevenson, nothing beat the shade of certain trees that had a certain lilt to the trunk that let you lean and just sit and dream. No, aren't you glad I decided not to go on about it? So, are you wrapped and ready? Listen, by the way, if going home takes you north tonight when you pass that winter shell that's Wrigley Field, and if you go a little farther, you'll come to Graceland Cemetery. Two words. It's haunted. Well, of course it is. It's historic. Built just outside of Chicago in 1860, the train used to service it. See? A growth ring. The city now goes much farther on from it. Famous people with vast past lives are dead in there. No wonder the stories, hmm? Mayors, governors, artists, conmen, thieves. George Pullman, Alan Pinkerton, Louis Sullivan, Daniel Burnham, Jack Johnson, Mies van der Rohe, hundreds more. They're all in there, the famous, the not famous. Not all are said to be resting, too. There's a small girl... Inez Clark, struck by lightning at a picnic, six years old. Her ivory statue stands encased in glass. So, if you pass Graceland Cemetery on foot at night, perhaps you should cross the street. Hurry on. Hurry home. Hurry up. Hurry into bed and rush quickly into the arms of that night's pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.